Welcome to another episode of Be Now. It's the show where nothing needs to happen because it's already happening. Be happening. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the job of a great leader is to take the least amount of important decisions in a day. So you should take less decisions but a higher quality. Yeah, yeah. So uh, why don't we, uh, yeah, why don't you just take a minute and just kind of, uh, yeah, introduce yourself for the good listeners. Sure, cool. My name is Momo. I am originally from Ecuador. I came to China in two, 2010 for two months. <laughs> and uh, here I am, 10 years later, still here. Wow, so you came for two months originally. What uh, what kept you here? Um, so originally I came uh, um, because one of my clients was EF Education. I had a small design studio. They flew me over because their product design team was here. And, and then I fell in love with this, with this city, with this place, with the people, with the company. Um, and, um, and it just made sense. I think it, it happened at the right time in my career. Um, and, you know, I come from Ecuador. It's a very small country, you know, and, and, and the opportunities, I think, for, for, for growth and development for me were just very different here. And, and, and I took that opportunity to almost reinvent myself and steer my career towards what I do now, which is um, quite different, I guess, from, from the first half of my career. And, yeah, it's been fun since. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm really interested in uh, this whole idea of self-reinvention. Um, and you come yeah, from, from yeah. the design field. So what are you uh, spending your time with these days? I'm, you're working at IKEA, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So I work at uh, IKEA, IKEA Digital Hub, the China Digital Hub. And um, I look after you know all the digital design that happens at IKEA. Um, so everything that you see in your hands and everything you see in the stores... Um, is designed by our team, our design team. Um, so I'm helping essentially transform, uh, I guess, IKEA through, uh, I guess, various initiatives that have to do with either becoming omnichannel or, you know, digitizing, um, I guess, traffic or modernizing performance of the stores through digital, uh, you know, vehicles and whatnot. So, yeah, it's quite quite a fun challenge. Mm. How did, uh, and uh, I know before you used to work at IDO, uh, and yeah. I, I fucking love <laughs> IDO, man. Um, they were a big inspiration <laughs> for me, uh, like going through grad school in San Diego. Uh, what was it right. like working right. at IDO? Yeah, no, IDO was great. Uh, to be honest, it's one of the best workplaces that, that I've been part of. I think people there is is, is really mission-driven, you know, very purposeful people, very, very smart, but also very humble. Um, it was very humbling for me as a designer to join uh, IDEO because it's always been a company that, you know, I admire as a designer and I had the opportunity to um, to end up there. And, and it was humbling because you very quickly realize that maybe the tools, the vocabulary, the visibility you have of design, the understanding you have of maybe strategy, um, as strong as you think you may be in certain aspects, then working at IDEO makes you realize that there's there's a lot more to it. You know, uh, it makes you realize that having the perspectives of other people that um, that, as I mentioned, are very very intelligent and very smart and humble in their own ways, uh, it just gives you a, a new vantage points, I guess, new perspectives that really round you up as a professional. I learned a lot of new things on, in my time there. I spent like three years and. 
and uh, yeah, it was a great opportunity. And and people is just really nice. It's a really really cool workplace. Yeah. Mm. How when did you get started in uh, wanting to be a designer? Like yeah, how did that get started for you? Right. So um, there were two moments I, I guess that were defining for me in terms of going into design as a career. I think the first one was when my uncle gifted me a small scanner. It was one of those old school scanners that, you know, they look like a mouse, almost like a giant mouse. And they have a button. You have to roll them on top of a piece of paper. I don't know the names, like a scan, roll and scan, scan and roll. I don't know whatever the name is. Um, so that was the first, uh, I guess, moment when I realized that I, I, can, I can translate analog drawings into a, a digital thing, into a JPEG on my old computer. And I became fascinated with the idea of taking reality and putting it inside a computer. Um, and that was very early in my in my high school days, I guess, like, I don't know, second year of high school or something. And then that idea just kind of, you know, got stuck, I guess, in my head. And then at some point, I, I became obsessed with computers in general. Um, and then uh, originally, I got into design because I was um, working in a small animation studio. But actually, I was just, you know, as a part-time job, helping me pay university. So I was just literally scanning scanning paper, you know, scanning mountains of paper, uh, a, like A3 sheets, you know, that had like drawings of an arm or pieces of a, of a face, you know, that later would be like clean up and, and painted and, and composed together and animated and edited later. So I was at the very beginning of that kind of chain of reaction. Um, but I was there because I was good at optimizing things. I came into code, software, and scripts to optimize scanning and automatically recognizing images and renaming them and putting them in the right folder. So I designed a little bit of a primitive file management system. Eventually, I made myself obsolete. So they moved me from scanning pages to cleaning drawings. And then later, I kind of made myself obsolete there too. So I kind of obsoleted the, my way up the chain. And I ended up working in animation on the creative side as well for, I guess, almost seven years. That's what got me really into art and motion graphics and and design, essentially, right? And um, it was a slow transition, to be honest, from computer science to to design, like a full-blown design career. But um, it was a very interesting What was the hardest part to make that leap from computer science to design? Um, I think it's decoupling the, the the extreme logic that you need to use when, when you code, right? There's a very logical aspect to building software that sometimes constrains you when you are in design. In design, you often need to take more like a emotional, intuition-driven, like a more like a gut-feeling approach. Obviously, there's a lot of logic in design, but there's, it's a different mindset. And I feel I always had con- that conflict inside when I was uh, programming things. I always wanted to be a bit more creative with my code. And then, you know, that didn't work that well. But like when you want to be a bit more logical with design, sometimes you get to interesting places as well. So that was the hardest part. I guess just that mindset shift from uh, being logical and methodical and rigid and actually enjoying the confined spaces of a, of a box to actually having to design around the box, not, right. you know, the classic cliche thing outside the box. That Learning how to do that was, was a bit of a challenge. Designing yeah. around the box. I know at, uh, at, I know at IDEO, like, it was big on um, interdisciplinary collaboration, right? And I'm sure maybe at IKEA, yep. IKEA yep. as well. And, like, yep. yeah, just this uh, cross-pollination across disciplines. Uh, right. What's, what's right. it like? I mean, that, that sort of mindset mm-hmm. to let yourself yeah. sort of speak the other disciplines language uh, really helps out. What's that like at IKEA? So 
Um, I think independently of the workplace, right? I think design as as a whole will always benefit from having multiple perspectives. Um, I tend to disagree with the creative industry, specifically advertising or you know marketing and communication. Sometimes they tend to uh, glorify individualism and individual creators, um, and they tend to build an entire hierarchical system on creativity around sometimes single individuals. And I and I'm not sure I, I agree with that. I think creativity, although it's a very personal endeavor, you know, it's a very almost selfish thing. Like you, you typically don't want, you know, people to like be like touching your ideas and like, you know, it's like they're plucking the, the leaves of your plant and you kind of don't want that. And so it's a very personal thing. And I agree and I understand that. But I think design as a whole, right, the act of creating something that solves a problem, um, I think it's almost ridiculous to think that a single mind can, can create great things without any assisted help. I think you always benefit from having different perspectives and dimensions from research to having different people from different disciplines in the room to having multiple consumers maybe even, you know, looking at your work or helping you take different decisions. So from that perspective, I think the way we use that level of collaboration at IKEA it comes in two angles. One is the, the multidisciplinary collaboration that you said where, you know, designers are working side by side with engineers and analytics people and technology people. But at the same time, they are informed by consumer research that we do directly in our stores or sometimes doing remote service or remote research or even just looking at analytics at scale, right? So all these inputs are important for for design and obviously important for designers as well. So then the question mark, I think sometimes for me is like, how do I nurture a design culture, right? That, that, that thrives on creativity, but at the same time is, 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 is it, it relies almost, uh, uh, it has the professional obligation to rely on other inputs that are non-design driven, you know? Yeah, that's a, so that's a bit of a challenge at times. Right, that's a big question mark, yeah. Nurturing that design culture, right? To that, mm-hmm, with that mm-hmm, context, mm-hmm. when are the, um, like the golden moments when you're working on a project? Right. Um, I think it, it, it depends on the type of project. I think each project gives you like a, a certain kind of different waves of satisfaction, satisfaction, you know, there, there, are, there's very personal satisfaction. There's like a team celebration level satisfaction sort of thing. Uh, for me personally, the highlights typically come when, um, when there's like one idea that unlocks the entire team, you know, when there's a team looking after a problem and, you know, sometimes, you know, you get brilliant people, but sometimes music is not playing, you know what I mean? Like there's something that doesn't help things move. For me, especially when I was at IDEO, it was like that one post-it note that sometimes unlocked the entire afternoon, you know, like one thing and everybody went like, whoa, and then, (laughs) you know, everybody just rallies around the thing. That was awesome. Uh, another kind of type of satisfaction here sometimes is when, when say, when you, when you spend a lot of time doing research and then you kind of synthesize all these learnings and then you arrive at sometimes contradictory findings. You arrive at something that kind of defies all, not even logic, but like all the assumptions, you know, when everybody just assumes things and then suddenly you look at the findings or the insights or the data and it just slaps you in the face and it just tells you the complete opposite. It's kind of fun to see everybody's reaction. And I enjoy it n- not because I'm, I'm happy to see that reaction, but because 
it's a great opportunity for design. It's a great opportunity for innovation to actually be challenged with, with evidence that assumptions were wrong, you know, right. or understanding was misaligned, or, 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 you know, maybe we chose the wrong path. I, I think there's a, there's a beauty in failure, right. and there's, 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 a, there's an excitement that naturally comes after that, especially when you have the opportunity to do something about it. Right. Do you feel like, because I feel like that's like such a human thing to have that bias that sort of blocks us from the greater insight, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. You're right. Do you find like it's uh, like, like you're actively trying to sort of break through that or allowing yourself or sort of surrounding yourself with people who sort of check each other? How does that work for you guys? Yeah. 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 So I, I, it, it depends. Like in large companies like IKEA, um, you know, it almost feels like companies are like, uh, like people almost, right? The accumulation of all the decisions you have ever taken. That that's who you are as a person, and that's 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 what big companies are. And sometimes it feels like the challenge is when you need to take a new decision that has no uh, underlying structure, right? It has no support structure underneath. So suddenly it's a decision you need to take out of out of context. It's a new decision on a new market or new category or new uh, target audience or new I don't know product exploration branch, whatever you call it. Right? The moment you need to take a new decision that doesn't seem to have the right level of uh, I don't know solidity underneath then companies freak out teams freak out and leaders freak out and I think that's that's a completely normal thing um, so I guess the challenge then is what are the right I guess dimensions that you need to add to that decision most of the time decisions are simply taken when there's when you have when you're confident about something a good decision is taken with confidence but confidence means different things for different teams and different people and different companies so some companies may have more confidence to take decisions when they see evidence in data. Sometimes they may take a decision where they see more evidence in, uh, I don't know, early market results or, you know, the right, I don't guess, business performance or the right forecast, the right benchmark, whatever. So uh, I think the challenge is identifying what is it that gives this specific team or leader or people or product confidence so that they can take this decision that is going to help people in the end. So to me, it always... I mean, I always try at least my best to, to, to bring everything back to people. How is this going to help people? Obviously, I need to be mindful of the business as well. But I tend to side more with consumers, uh, with the people that we're creating things for. Mm-hmm. The end consumer, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, like you said, yeah, there's a lot of dimension. Adding dimension to the decision to create more perspective. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, to, to the point on confidence, um, yeah, I read the, the, the book, uh, Creative Confidence with David and Tom Kelly, right? Yeah. That, that's a whole, yeah. that's yeah, a whole yeah. other can of worms, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're great. They're lovely people. Uh, and their book is, 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 I would say is, is, is timeless. There's a lot of very valuable lessons there that will be relevant, you know, 50 years from now. They will still be there. Yeah, and I want to recommend it to their listeners. Creative confidence. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's just yeah. a rich set of tools to just boost creativity individually or with the team, right, in the organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, it's so, a very interesting book, definitely. So um, I want to get to like your own, uh, I guess, yeah, your your own personal sort of process. How how do you, in general, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, maybe inner outside of design, like how do you stay inspired right. personally? It's interesting. My answer changes with time, I feel. Uh, I typically find inspiration in things that are familiar to me. 
So I'm more a familiarity and repetition kind of guy. <laughs> I'm not too much into like the novelty of things or the newness of things. Um, so I typically stay inspired by, by, by slowly growing my taste into new things. So I will be inspired by the same things for, for, for a number of months or years sometimes, like music, right? Uh, I will be inspired by the same family of things or, or products or brands, um, and I try to stay with that. I uh, I have a relatively narrow, uh, I guess, uh, collection of, uh, I guess, I don't know, brands or tastes, I guess, that, that I typically go to. Um, and the reason why I think that's inspiring to me is because it allows me to really go into the depths, sometimes, say, of the craft. So, say, if there's a specific brand that I like for audio, for example... I stay inspired because um, I spend time really digging through the heritage of the brand and the things that they have done and the philosophy of how they build things. And I go to the lens of connecting with the design uh, people behind these products and, you know, sending uh, messages to them, uh, you know, sending them emails and telling them, you know, the things that I like about what they do. So I stay inspired by by human creation in general, but I try to spend enough, I, I try to be intentional about how I explore the depths of, of, of these creations. And, and I really appreciate the effort that goes behind things from, you know, furniture. And I've actually done that with, with designers that have done IKEA furniture. Uh, in the past, way before I joined IKEA, um, I've actually emailed the, the, the people and the teams behind the, the Soderham sofa, for example, which is one of my favorite IKEA products. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful modular sofa I have it at home it's, it's great and and I went to the lens of finding the people behind it and, and sending them a message I was like thank you my home looks great and this is like I don't know like four or five years ago maybe when it just came out um, so yeah what what I, what keeps me inspired the short version is just um, the human potential to create really mm. would you say you're like a you're, you get obsessed with things um, I I have a healthy obsession for things, but I can control it. Yeah, I, I I I typically try to explore things to to the point where I feel I know enough about them to to let them go. You know what I mean? I am I am obsessed about learning typically, but but I can also choose to switch that off. Yeah. So I used to try and control these. Uh, I guess these 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 behavior. I guess that I have. Because I'm very curious, I'm really curious about things, uh, and sometimes that, that that there's a shadow side to that, and it's a blind spot I, I have sometimes, which makes me a bit unfocused because you know everything is exciting and everything is possible. But then, where do I put my focus? What do I do next? Sort of thing. Uh, so I, I I used to do this monthly thing where I would I would have almost like a theme, you know, every month for things I want to do and stuff like that. And some of those were related to things I want to learn. So one theme would be things like. Um, I don't know, like black and white. I would be obsessed about the concept of black and white across everything, from photography to uh, what it means for, you know, uh, for how people think about race and then and, and the stupid division that sometimes exists between people just because of the color of your skin to, you know, how do you actually create a beautiful black and white photography from zero in a studio? What chemicals do you use? To How do you use a maybe a digital tool to do that? Do you use a yellow channel? Do you use a red channel, a blue channel? What are the differences and stuff like that? So I would obsess, I would guide myself to stay obsessed within a theme every month. Um, and this is something that I actually tried and, 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 and tried to bring to IDEO where uh, we started having this, uh, I guess every two, three months, we would try and rotate that theme 
to keep the studio inspired under an umbrella. So, for example, the theme would be, um, say, uh, invisible, for example. So, if the inspiration, the theme for inspiration is invisible, what are, what are examples of great design uh, that is invisible? And, and this could this could be an exploration that everybody would do in their in their time, you know, on across disciplines. Like, what does great invisible design means for industrial design, or for design research, you know, or for data science, or for communications design, or for interaction design? Uh, it's a good way to give everybody something in common and keep them inspired. I think. Mm. So every month, kind of having a the- themes in rotation every month, and sort of keeping the energy fresh, something new. Yeah, yeah, that always definitely helps. Yeah, yeah, especially because designers get bored very easily, to be honest. So, um, how do you how do you not keep them entertained, but how do you keep them inspired? I think that's the right word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That curiosity factor is such a. I mean, the thing I really admire about IDEO and you know just the design field in general. I mean, you know, not not every design field is this way, but uh, just a human centered element that yeah. you know that celebrates. Yeah. The, the, the human potential and all those weird quirks, all those weird ways. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing I've really appreciated about just the empathic approach. It's just a, I mean, yeah, just a non-judgmental sort of really mm. appreciating the human just as as it is in the wild. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think I think this design can take inputs and inspiration from many places, and uh, and obviously there's a strong commercial endeavor to it, um, but. But to your point, I think that there's something beautiful when you just r- realize that you know the design. There's no right or wrong. I think I think design can be a form of expression. Right. Uh, this design can also be a way to solve problems, and you can do this either for 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 brands if you want or for people. Right. There's no right or wrong. You can do whatever you want as a designer. If you want, you can design as a form of expression for brands, and then you can join. I don't know, a cool company that does apparel and does like cool stuff. Or you can use design to solve problems and maybe do it for people, right? So you don't need to work for a company. You can start your own thing or, yeah. or you know, function in a different way. To me personally, I feel like human-centered design, it's still, you know, a profitable commercial endeavor for companies. It's just simply a slightly different philosophy. It just helps you shift a little bit how you think about creating things and and it makes makes you more respectful of 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 not only people but society at large like when a company becomes more human centered it becomes a more responsible company it becomes a more sustainable company it becomes a more innovative company like i promise you if you work in a company that it's only looking after operational efficiency after optimizing every little click after optimizing every little function inside a company that company has way more blind spots than a company that is looking after becoming more competitive by being more creative or by being more human-centered, you know. And I think human-centeredness is is not the answer for everything, of course, but, like, it's something that definitely can can almost guarantee that a company will not only survive, but a company will continue to be relevant for people. Right. right. And that's kind of in the ethos of, um, of the leadership, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How leaders behave is very important. Uh, how leaders kind of uh, lead by by the example is important. And human centered leaders are are uh, I don't want to say rare because it's they're harder they're hard to spot. You know, it's difficult to spot a, a, a human centered leader because 
in, in, in the current, I guess, I guess, I don't know, uh, system, I don't know how to call it, but in the present, if we talk about time, in this era, it's being a leader, it, it's a complex orchestration of, of doing what you need to do and signaling what you need to signal and handling what you need to handle. So there's a delicate balance between a lot of different tensions and forces. And it's slightly unfortunate, I would say, that sometimes, sometimes being a human-centered leader can be perceived uh, as a shadow side, you know what I mean? As a, as a symbol that is not necessarily a symbol of strength. It's not necessarily a symbol of uh, strong leadership. When, when a leader is more human-centered, sometimes he's not perceived as a great leader, which is kind of, kind of messed up, in my view, because I feel human-centered leadership um, is actually a beautiful thing, and it's actually great for companies. And as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a profitable, is a, is a commercially solid endeavor. And I say this by experience, by working with enlightened leaders that are human-centered, um, and you know, by seeing evidence of how they have changed organizations and companies and teams and have led to great things. And I'm actually super proud of working in one right with one right now. Right. So we have very strong leaders here um, in China. Um, and they are incredibly sharp, you know, very, very focused on the business growth, but also super human centered. Like they put, they put the pr a priority in, in, in the decisions that they take that impact our customers. And I think that's a, that's a great thing. You know, a lot of companies will just say that, you know, a lot of companies will just say that as a PR thing. Uh, but it's the moment you live it, you know, the moment you experience that, that that's when real kind of employee pride. You know, the thing I'm really obsessed with in. is uh, to the idea of obsession is uh, listening habits. I feel like it's the thing that challenges me the most. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a human brain thing. Uh, but like, you know, stepping outside of my own story and like really like beginning again with a beginner's mind and just absorbing freshly. Um, and I feel like that's so elemental in uh, the workplace, not just for a leader. I mean, if you define leadership as kind of just taking care of the people around you, you know, not necessarily based on your rank. Um, I guess, yeah, the question is like, how, what is that? I like what you said, human centered leadership. I feel like that's like a thing, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah, what does listening look like uh, for a human centered leader? I think it's a, it's a mix. It's a mix of things. I think lis listening, if we remove listening from the act of absorbing information and making sense of it, I think lis it goes more to the sensing aspect. Like how sensitive are you as a leader of, 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 of your context, right? Of, of what's happening around you. How sensitive are you to, to the, to the dynamics that are happening in the workplace, right? How sensitive are you to the context of, you know, the coronavirus affecting things? How sensitive are you to the expected response uh, that the public has towards your company, right? If you're leading a company, I think th th there's more of a of a being more sensitive to those things. You know, there's a sensitivity thing. But within that, sure, like I think what what great listening is in leaders is, uh, I feel like great leaders are able to listen to things that are coming from different uh, levels of altitude, right? Sometimes they may be listening to. Uh, 
to at a higher level, at a strategic level? What are the conversations or what are the aspirations or hopes that I'm hearing, you know, at this strategy level? Or what what am I hearing that, that has to do more with a more tactical or operational aspect? And great leaders, I feel, have the ability to not only listen, but they are able to react and almost synthesize in real time. How is it that these different conversations or points of view kind of aggregate and create this kind of vantage point that lets me as a leader you know, guide, I guess, or or push or activate, whatever you call it, um, a good, strong, solid decision based on what I'm hearing, right? I think that the job of a great leader is to take the least amount of important decisions in a day. So you should take less decisions but a higher quality if that's, if that's, a, if that's a framework to use, right? And I think by, by being a great listener, but by knowing how to listen and how to make sense of, 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 of that information, of that input, those decisions can actually be crisper and sharper, right? So let's, um, kind of on the interest of time, uh, it's a huge, huge uh, topic, leadership, but on the interest of right, time, right. Uh, I'm curious, yeah. Um, yeah, so what does, um, you know, we kind of covered a lot of ground so far, um, but and, and a thing that I love most is, about yeah, this conversation here and just the idea of uh, you know design and creativity is uh, it tapping into the human potential of being curious. And as kids, you know, kids are just we're just you know just uh, just ongoingly curious. Just the engines yeah. always running. And yeah. you, and you have a three year old, so I'm sure you're close to that energy. Um, what were, what were you like as a kid? Um. So I used to be very quiet, to be honest. I used to be very quiet, almost introverted. Um, I was always a bit, um, uh, I was a bit like, a bit too shy, I feel, because I was a very tall kid and I was, I was kind of a large kid. You know, I was a bit chubby and I was very tall. Uh, so I was the tallest one in the class always. And because of that, I felt that there was this inevitable visibility that I was getting no matter what. So it almost didn't matter how good or how bad I, I was at something. I was always visible, you know. And, um, and that, that affected me a bit, if I'm honest. I think that made me a bit more hesitant, a bit more thoughtful. Um, that made me a bit less participative, I guess, if that's the word, on certain things. But at the same time, I feel at some point it just gave me a lot of courage. Because at some point, all the kids were the same height as me, you know. And suddenly, all of us were the same. Like at some point, all of us kind of like equalized. And when that happened, I realized that um, I actually missed being visible. You know, suddenly I became normal and I was like, this is cool. But then, you know, very quickly I realized that I miss, I miss being a little different. And then the question for me back then, I was just at the beginning of high school when I was like the same height as most people around me then was like, how do, how do I then become a bit more visible, right? And then I started be, be, being a bit more involved with other things. Like, you know, there was a guitar group and there was like a poetry club and there was like, uh, this is this is long time ago. So there was even like a typography club, you know, like where we would just go and this is this is not typography as we design a, a typeface. This is go and bring your typewriter and write together. It was like a very lame thing. Um, so, you know, those were ways that I found that in a way, made made me feel a bit different. I kind of realized that I like being a bit different, and that kind of uh, that that's something that I still try to maintain in a good way. I mean, I try to stay 
as connected as I can and as close as I can to as many people as possible, right? I don't like, I don't, I, I don't believe in ego. I don't believe in like that I'm better than others or whatever. I, I'm just a normal guy. But I like feeling that I'm a little different. And I try to actively find ways to be a little different just mm. for that personal satisfaction. Mm, just embracing, yeah, that, that unique quality that's within everyone. I guess like, like when you embrace it within mm -hmm. yourself, you acknowledge it in others too, yeah? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. Yeah, exactly. You know what I like? I like that after each one of my answers, you kind of give me like the very short synthesis of what I just said. He's like, yes, that's great. You would be a great strategist, you know, listening to a bunch of rambles and then you'd be like, oh, so what do you mean is this? I'm like, yes, I need more people like you, man. Glad, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm always trying to get to the essence of what I'm hearing. Sometimes it hits, sometimes it doesn't, but I'm glad. Right, right, right. Great. Um, so final question for you, man. Um, how this is, this is, a, so again, on an obsession, this is a, kind of the question right. that I love asking everyone. Uh, which yeah. is, how do you connect with your real inner self? Mm, yeah. Huh. This is a very tough question. Um, I feel like my inner self tends to be a bit confused at times. Part of it is because I've been far away from home for a long time. I've been, I mean, it's been 10 years since I left my hometown and I feel like I'm not really from Ecuador anymore, but I also know that I'm not from China, you know? So the concept of home to me is a very blurry word. To be honest, it's, it's not a poetic thing or anything, but part of the reason why I joined IKEA is because IKEA is a company that is obsessed about, you know, life at home and what, what does home really mean to people? And I felt this is going to be the perfect place for me because it's going to help me figure out, you know, this thing that right now I don't really understand, which is, you know, where, where is home? Like, what do I do about it? So related to that, connected to my inner self, it's been an adventure uh, recently. So um, I try, I try to, to do a little bit of meditation. I, I, I run a journal where I, every day I kind of just try and capture some th things that I'm grateful for uh, and things that keep me inspired. Um, because I feel as a designer in general, um, most designers, the older we get, the more excited we get about not knowing things. Not knowing things is exciting for a, for a, for a designer, I feel. Because, I mean, we thrive on problems, right? There's no boundaries to creativity because there's no boundaries in problems. So we need to actively be seeking out things to solve and things to do and things to learn. And, and because of that, I feel at times that I have almost lost the ability to, 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 to know, you know, when I stop designing, when I'm not actively trying to learn something, when I'm not connecting with other people, when I'm not having interesting conversations like this one I'm having with you, like, who am I? You know, what am I made of? Um, and sometimes that's the hardest question to, to solve, you know. So this is not a giant, I don't know, you know, answer to your short question, but... I think it is my answer is just like I'm in this constant exploration of of, of of who exactly I am, and I feel like I'm okay with not knowing yet, or you know, being okay with not having an answer because I think that's part of being a designer, be perpetually, perpetually unsatisfied, you know, and I think that's a, that's a good thing I think for me at this moment. You know, one of my favorite uh, definitions of courage is uh, flirting with the unknown. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Huh. Where's that quote from? That's, that's lovely. I kind of so did my own spin. Uh, there's a famous Indian guru, Osho. He, his is uh, uh -huh. um, 
courage is a, is a love affair with the unknown. I just kind of simplified it. Interesting. Love affair with the unknown. Flirting with the unknown. Love affair with the unknown. I like that too. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can relate to that quote. I can relate with that quote. When I was at IDEO, a lot of that had to do with the unknown. I had to deal with a lot of unknowns when I was there. Navigating that ambiguity was uh, was lovely. It, I don't know if it was a love affair, but you know, it was a it was a thing. Dude, so I want to just uh, thank you for this is this has been lovely. I feel uh, just really uh, just excited to chat with you, man. Um, thank you, thank you for for inviting me. I mean, I, I love to have a chance to have interesting conversations. I love your questions, and yeah, thank you for making me reflect on these things. I don't think I spent enough time sometimes thinking deeply about some of this stuff and, and, and it's great to have a chance to to share with you and, and, and your audience and your friends these things so thanks again for having me awesome thanks so much any any final uh, any final thoughts questions uh, for the listeners uh, no I would just encourage everybody to, to to be curious you know I think curiosity and optimism are the engine of the future curiosity helps you learn new things and optimism will help you put it to good use so mm. go and be those two things yeah yeah